She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Kolchek the Night Stalker, episode 12. Mr. Ring. In this episode, when a Nobel Prize winning scientist dies, Kolchek is tasked with writing his obituary as a punishment. But while trying to find out what the scientist was working on before he died, Kolchek uncovers a classified government project that may be killing people in order to remain secret. <sighs> yeah. This episode was written by L. Ford Neal and John Huff. It was directed by Gene Levitt. Its original air date was Friday, January 10th, 1975 at 8 p.m. Yeah, so just on the resources available, I have no idea what aired on December 27th or January 3rd because what I use to find old TV listings, there's actually, they don't even list the, like the network using them listed for those days. So sometimes they're just blank. Obviously, if I could get access to old TV guides, I would know. Although that does vary by location, I believe, in some cases. But anyway, so I don't know what played here. And then on the switch to 8 p.m. So Kolchak used to air at 10 p.m., which meant that it aired after the $6 million man. Now it airs before the $6 million man, although that's only going to be good for like two weeks because in two weeks, the $6 million man is actually going to move to Sundays. But what really is an issue with this time change is that now Kolchak the Night Stalker competes directly with Sanford and Son and Chico and the Man. They're both very popular shows. Sanford and Son was in its fourth season. And Chico and the Man actually debuted the same night that Kolchak did on Friday, September 13th, 1974. Sanford and Son would have two more seasons, and it ended in 1977. Chico and the Man would have three more seasons and ends in 1978. But Kolchak the Night Stalker sadly has no more seasons and ends in 1975 after eight more episodes from this one. Doesn't even complete the season. Aww. So, yeah, this is kind of there were other things going on. And we've talked about them in a little bit and we'll talk about them more later, probably maybe in like our season wrap up. But this is kind of where the network stops supporting the show. And then they placed it in a time slot that already had an incredibly popular show on another channel. And like, you aren't going to watch Sanford and Son and then flip and watch half of Kolchak, right? Kolchak's an hour show. Sanford and Son is a half hour sitcom. Chico and the Man's a half an hour sitcom. So like switching to eight o'clock really did kind of result in Kolchak being canceled when it was. But there were other issues going on too. Yeah. So. Doesn't help though. Whenever they move you to an unpopular time slot... We'll talk about this when it finally comes up, but X-Files eventually got moved to Sunday nights, and that was not mm -hmm. good for the X-Files. Did they move like to Mondays and Wednesdays at some point, too? I forget, but yeah. Probably. I just remember it moving to Sundays and hating that, because I really yeah, like when Friday. Yeah, well, because when Millennium starts, they give Millennium X-Files slot, and then X-Files moves to Sunday, which is interesting because X-Files actually airs on Sundays, and we'll talk about this when it happens. Everyone thinks of X-Files as Friday nights. But it actually aired on Sundays far longer than it ever aired on Fridays. So it's kind of yeah. interesting that just you get locked into that. Like, Yeah. Well, I remember it being your Friday night show, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you get mom yeah. to order pizza, and then you watch Are You Afraid of the Dark on Nickelodeon and The X-Files. And then Picket Fences. Um, so. I was too young. 
Okay. <laughs> I honestly, knowing, I'm kind of thinking you were too young for the X-Files too. Um, but, probably, but you know, <laughs> yeah. listen, but my everyone, mom was only going to fight us on so many things. Yeah. And like, she just picked your battles. And everyone consumes media. You all will often hear people talk about like, I read that book way before I should have, or I oh, saw yeah. that movie way before I should have. You know, and honestly, like, like we talked about, we've talked about this a couple of times, a lot of the stuff that you really, that's kind of inappropriate just goes over your head anyway. So you don't really notice it until yeah. you're older and you're rewatching. And as far as like the fear part, I mean, eh, there are scarier things in reality. <laughs> like it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we get our standard opening theme sequence of Kolchek, which is a really good theme. And just the opening itself is really cut nicely. I am a fan of it. Anyway, so Kolchek's filling a kettle from the water dispenser in the INS offices. And he's the only one in the office. It seems to be nighttime. And he actually seems kind of disoriented. He ends up going over his desk and he kind of seems both surprised and perplexed to find his recorder. Like it's under his hat, like it's just sitting on his desk and he pulls his hat up and he's like, oh, like he sees his recorder. He definitely doesn't seem like things are going right. No. And so then he decides to press record. And he says, I don't know when exactly I was in his office last. In some ways, it seems like I never left. But no, that's not right. For at least a few days, I was away, far away in the hands of men with no faces and no names. They broke me down, broke my story down, telling me how it hadn't happened the way I claimed. At least I think that's what they did between injections. Memories fade fast enough without chemical help. But if I don't tell this story now, I don't think I ever will. What was the date? And then we get normal Kolchak voiceover and we get April 2nd, Sunday, 11.25 p.m. And we have cut to a high-tech computer lab by 1975 standards with, like, you know, walls of computers with, like, disc tapes going and flashing lights everywhere. And Dr. Avery Walker was working late. He was part of a team of top researchers. But tonight, he was working alone. He had been given very specific orders, and he intended to complete them in exacting detail. And as Dr. Avery is walking around this high-tech lab, we see there's a body on like a slab, a high-tech slab, mind you. And it's got like a robotic face. It's got like lights for a face, like, like a circuit board with like row of lights and stuff like that. And so it's like an android or a robot. And as Dr. Avery walks by, we see the android's hand kind of move. And then Dr. Avery is like looking at it checklist and he's doing some stuff and he walks around in front of the slab and then the android sits up and grabs Dr. Avery by the throat squeezes and Dr. Avery oh, crumples to the ground and then the robot gets up and leaves and then it's commercial oh. yeah 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 so April 2nd was a Sunday in 1972 and it was a Sunday in 1978 but it wasn't a Sunday in 1974 or in 1975. So is this just an error, April 2nd, Sunday, 11.25 p.m.? Or is this part of the attempted mind wipe on Kolchak having some effect on his remembering dates and times? We don't know. Yeah. I would guess it's probably an error. But like in universe, I would just say that it's because Kolchak's all messed up. So he doesn't know. Yeah. Or just like no one's going to go and look and see what the date was for April 2nd in 1974 or 1975. So, 
Because Kolchak does tend to do things in the past, but then in the movies, he's had dates where, like, the, the movie will air. He'll be saying a date that's actually in the future where it matches, like, the day of the week. But, yeah, but, like, it's the same year. But, yeah, so this one this one is definitely off, though. So Yeah. So then we get a night view of Chicago from the lake with just a hint of orange in the sky. So the sun is setting. And we get the title credits. And then we cut to pure night. And we get... Kolchak's voiceover and he tells us that at 1.15 postal worker Arnold Techman was an hour behind Techman loved hot Texas chili but it didn't love him back <laughs> and it made him late <laughs> mm. and if Techman was late the mail was late so maybe eat those up like eat that on your day off maybe <laughs> but he Just, loves it yeah I mean to be fair, like I'm the worst. I'm like, man, hot sauce keeps giving me really bad acid reflux. Let me dump some sriracha on this thing I'm eating. So, you know, I do the yeah. same thing. I'm going to assume it was doing more than giving him acid reflux. Probably, <laughs> but still, same principle. Like, you know, this is not good, but you know, it just tastes so good. Gotta love that spicy burn. So tonight the mail would be even later. And Techman, uh -oh. yeah, it doesn't sound like things are going to go well for Techman. So Techman stops his mail truck and he's like bending over a sidewalk mailbox and behind him, the robot appears and he throws him into a pile of crates and rubbish. And apparently <laughs> this is Nick Snow, but Chicago sidewalks and alleys in the mid seventies were apparently always piled with crap. I'm not sure how mm -hmm. much of that is like TV set dressing versus like what's actually on the There sidewalk, were a lot of garbage strikes. Yeah. I understand in the seventies. So yeah, that makes sense. But basically, we're not sure if Techman is dead or unconscious, but the robot steals his clothes. Yep. And then the robot is walking by this, like, novelty party shop, and it starts staring in the window. And we see that, like, it's wearing Techman's postal uniform, which is too small. And he looks through the window display of masks. And he has these flashing LED lights on his face, and we see them reflect in the glass. And then he smashes the glass with a quick strike. And he takes a blue mask from the display and he like puts it over his face and walks away. Yeah, he's got to cover his robot face. So, yeah, yeah. can't be walking around looking like an android. That's how we'll yeah. know the robot revolution has started and we all have to hide. Mm. A lot earlier than we thought, too. I have to yeah, say. yeah, it's pretty early. I do wonder the postal guy, his name is Techman. And then, like, he's mugged by a robot. I wonder if that was <laughs> intentional or not. Probably. So, yeah. Also, despite this being a robot, so I write the notes for these episodes, and despite this being a robot, I did use him, his pronouns in the notes, because the robot is based on a male form. I mean, it's a dude in a beige, full-body, head-to-toe leotard with an LED panel for a face and a scuzzy cable running down his chest and around his waist. It's also used, like, 99% of the time by the characters in this episode, with, I think, like, there's one exception when a character actually says it, but everyone else always just uses he, his so it's just easier i think i don't like calling things it either by the yeah, way yeah i know it's kind of uncomfortable to yeah. do that so it's like you know it's like yeah he's a robot but he's in this episode he's kind of a living thing so it's kind of strange and i also know that scuzzy cables like the scuzzy interface wasn't publicly announced until 1982 and it wasn't standardized until 1986 but like when i see those type of cables i just think of scuzzy cables so yeah don't like at me because you know that scuzzy wasn't around in 1975 okay i get it i know so honestly the whole robot looks like it was designed by someone who does not understand how computers work and well, that's, that's just because you're not at the cutting edge in 1974 yeah so. i mean to be fair 
it was 1974 and how computers work was a lot more mysterious than it is you even saw today. those big craze along the wall in the office that we're running i mean like your phone has more computing power than like that whole wall of computers probably does yeah oh, for sure then. so yeah so it's the next day or the same day i guess where we're counting from because we started at 11 25 and then it's 1 15 the same night which mainly means it is the same day. So now it's like morning, basically, is what we're trying to say. And the elevated train passes the INS offices, and inside, Kolchak enters, and he's in a really good mood. He's walking in, he's whistling, he's all, good morning all. And Ron's like, good morning. And Kolchak's like, it's not that good, because Kolchak doesn't really like Ron. But Ron is leaving. He's got a suitcase, and he's like, bye. And Miss Emily's like, see you. And he's like, I'm heading home to my city by the bay. And he's happy and he walks out. And so Kolchak goes over to Miss Emily and he's like, why is Ron so happy? Did you get a raise? And she's like, no, not that I know of. And he's like, did you get a promotion? And she's like, nope. And he's like, then why is he so happy? And she's like, because you're in trouble. <laughs> Kolchak's like, ah, yes, okay. And he's like, well, off to the den. And he tosses his hat to his desk and he just goes into Vincenzo's office, but he's still in a good mood. And he greets Vincenzo like, good morning. But it doesn't work. Vincenzo's like, where have you been? And Kolchak's like, what? It's only like 1030. And he's like, where were you all day yesterday? And Kolchak says, well, do you remember that murder up in the West Falls? Something about it just didn't seem right to me. So I went up there to check it out. And Vincenzo's like, well, and? And he's like, well, it was right. I was wrong. And then Vincenzo's like, so what you're trying to tell me is that you spent all day fishing yesterday. And Kolchak's like, well, you know, I was already up there. And so Vincenzo finishes the sentence for him and says, so you figured that we could all manage without you. Be careful, Carl, because one day we're going to realize that we can. And then he hands Kolchak a file folder and says, here, take care of this. So Kolchak is looking through it. And Vincenzo tells him that he needs to get background on Dr. Avery Walker. He's a Nobel Prize winner who suffered a heart attack and died on Sunday. And he was a leader in computer science and they need an obit for him. Mm -hmm. And Kolchak's like, well, just go to the file that we have. And he's like, no, the last entry we have on him is from 1967 and it's barely legible. I can't even read what it says. And then Kolchak's like, well, Ron's on obit duty. Have him do it. He's like, I can't. I sent Ron to San Francisco to cover the Mendenham trial, a story that would have been yours if you'd have been here yesterday. And Kolchak starts like, what? what the, 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 you sent Ron to San Francisco to do my job? And Tony's like, one either fishes or cuts bait. Yeah, so. I love it. I think it's so funny <laughs> that like Kolchak plays hooky and then Ron gets to go to San Francisco and cover the trial. And it's like, sorry. I mean, it's just funny because like you kind of put yourself in that box, Kolchak. You kind of did. Yeah. I'm also wondering now if it was just the next day because does that mean Kolchak skipped out on Sunday? Because he says the doctor was died on Sunday. That would make then sense. My assumption was that it's Monday, but then if he was gone yesterday, that means he wasn't in the office on Sunday. So I'm not sure. Maybe he's supposed to work on Sundays. I don't know. Yeah, the I news. don't know either. Like we said, the news doesn't stop. Nope. It keeps on coming. Yep. So Kolchak storms out of the office, and Miss Emily is like, did you get fired? And he's like, no, but I think I'm going to quit. Yes, I can't believe he sent Updike to California to do my story. Updike. And then he sits down at his desk and he's like, in the old days, we gave obituaries to the lowest form of animal life in the newsroom. And then Vincenzo's at his door and he says, well, some things never change, Kolchak. 
And then he walks the file for the obituary over to Kolchek's desk and he drops it and says, I think you forgot about this. And drops it on his desk and then just stretched back to his desk. You know, he's smiling, he's smiling, smiling, smiling. And Kolchek like looks through it and then he just like ugh, puts his head down on his desk on top of it. And just, <laughs> yeah. So, so Kolchek arrives at the Walker's residence and there's a man sitting in a car across the street. And before Kolchak gets out of his Mustang, he notices the car in his side mirror, and then he kind of smirks, and he gets out, and he goes up to the house. And then the man in the car picks up a phone and says, this is Peters. I have a report. <sighs> Inside the Walker residence, Miss Walker is pouring herself another drink from the bar, and Kolchak gives her respects, and she thanks him, and he says her husband was a fine man, and she's kind of caught off guard, and she asks if he knew her husband. And Kolchak says, no, you know, not personally, but he did great work and he won the Nobel Prize and, you know, all that. And so she rolls her eyes and Kolchak is kind of hoping she can fill him in on the details of his death. So she takes a big drink and she's slurring a little and she's just like they said, heart attack. And then she asks Kolchak if he's sure she can't get him a drink. And Kolchak declines, but then he asks about they. And she's like, you know, the doctors up at the Tyrell Institute. That's where he was working. And Kolchak doesn't really know about that. And she's like, no one does. It's very secret. All hush hush. Government work, she thinks. And yeah, Kol- she's all, no one does. Because <laughs> she's, she's sloshed. She's, she's sloshed. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she's very inebriated. And so Kolchak asks what kind of government work. And she's like, I just told you. It's secret. And so she slouches into the stuffed chair. And she says her husband wouldn't tell her anything except ring, ring like a telephone. And Kolchak asks what that means. And Miss Walker says that whatever it means, if Avery was working on it, it was a colossal bore. He was so boring. They were all boring. And then she's like, as she's talking, she's like gesturing with her hands. And she accidentally like flings her glass sideways as she gestures. And so like some of her drink falls on the carpet and she like bends down and starts trying to like rub the carpet with her hand. She's very drunk. And she mentions they wouldn't even let her see his body. Not that she really wanted to, but she bets they let Leslie Dwyer see him. They worked together. And then she mentions they also played together. (sighs) So Kolchak is leaving the house and he gets into his Mustang and he pulls up alongside Peters, who's the man in the car. And Peters is pretending to read a magazine. And Kolchak like pulls right up to him. So their windows are right next to each other. And he asks him what he's reading. He's like, I hope it's interesting. There's going to be a quiz on it later. And he like peels out. And so Peter's like, oh. And he like drops the magazine, starts the car, and like turns around to follow Kolchak. Oh. And he does kind of stop by this van, which says it's Joe's vacuum cleaner repair. And he gives him a signal. And the guy in the van nods and like adjusts his mirror to watch the Walker house as Peter speeds off. Yeah. I love this theme because so I realize like, you know, like you're making references and like the temporal differences don't match. But like the way Darren McGavin gives the line when he's like, what are you reading? It's very like Robert Downey Jr. Like hardcore, like energy of like, just kind of like, what are you reading? I hope it's something interesting. (laughs) Just like total like. Yeah, I love it. it yeah, fantastic. Yeah, you just have so, a little Tony Stark energy going there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. So, Mrs. Walker is played by Julie Adams. She was credited as Julie Adams in her earlier career, and she's possibly best known from the Creature in the Black Lagoon. She was like the leading lady in that, where you know the creature kidnaps her. She was also basically like an like if you name a TV show in like the seventies 
and late 60s. She was basically in it. And then to check off another one of our boxes, she did have a recurring role on Murder, She Wrote as Eve Simpson. Nice. I don't remember that, but... It's vaguely familiar. Yeah. I do hope she gets another scene in this episode, and preferably not one that includes her dying, because um, I kind of find drunk Mrs. Walker kind of hot, honestly. So... (laughs) I think she's a hot mess. I mean, she's <laughs> she's a very attractive hot mess, but she's a oh, hot yeah. mess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So Kolchak is heading across the city to interview Dr. Leslie Dwyer. And then he hears something on his police, like radio band, and it's a police report. And so he decides to take his side trip and he's going to go report on some crime because that's his job. Crime, mayhem, and destruction. Mm-hmm. He's not going to get stuck doing, oh, but screw Vincenzo. <laughs> So the robot in his postal uniform, which is actually, it's just the pants, the belt, and the coat. It's very awkward looking. Yeah. And he's wearing the face mask. And he bursts out of the window of Glen Gary Mortuary. And he's carrying a silver suitcase. So cops, like, beat him with batons across his back. And he just throws them across cars. And a plainclothes officer that we'll eventually learn is Captain Aiken has a megaphone and he's shouting at the officers not to fire their weapons, but they're cops. So they still do. Mm-hmm. And the weapons have no effect. And at one point the robot uses a large piece of lumber to knock over several cops at once. And then the sidewalks are like full of crates and garbage. And so like the scuffle knocks over the ladder of some poor guy trying to finish the marquee of a movie theater. And of course it's announcing the sixth week of the fever. Yeah, which movie. we saw last episode. Although I did double check. It is a different movie marquee. It's not the same marquee. So it's a different theater. Huh. Nice. So, yeah. And the robot bursts through a metal gate and starts climbing a ladder to the roof. And he rips down a metal balcony to keep the cops from following him. And then as he gets to the top and climbs off the ladder, Kolchak gets a good look. But he's still kind of unsure what he just saw. Because the whole it's a very weird looking situation. Yeah. Because he's got like a blue man group mask on, basically. He's got like right. a little like white star like on one eye like it would be like the little like the teardrop tattoo that you would have but it's the star and yeah it's kind of he's wearing like a postal outfit and he his body's all brown like like brown fabric like yeah like like beigey yeah that beige 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 fabric yeah Yeah. it's a very interesting bodysuit because like we see in the opening it's like a bodysuit that has individual toes and then it's also got the individual fingers so it's like the full thing and then it's got like the like a like a hoodie that covers the majority of his head and then the the electronic faceplate so it's really interesting i think the scuzzy cable is to hide the zipper down the front oh probably probably yeah (laughs) because at first i thought i thought it was and i was like oh no that's computer cable oh but it's probably there to hide the zipper so and then obviously it's wrapped around his waist too which probably hides the fact that like it's a pair of pants and a top instead of being a one piece so yeah i'm guessing i don't know right but then also we have commercial so Sure. No one died. Yay. So then after the robot has escaped, Kolchek is asking Aiken why they were going softball on the guy. He notes how gun happy they usually are and why they didn't shoot him. Although to be fair, they did actually shoot him several times, but like it wasn't happy, but usually they are much more gun happy and like a zog. Right. Well, the bullets just didn't do anything. So yeah. 
but they did. They were restrained in this one. I have to say there were less gunfire, but Aiken though is apparently new and doesn't know Kolchak. He's like, are you a reporter? And Kolchak is like, no, I'm going to say this. And he's like, you're a reporter. And then he just ignores him because like I said, he figures out that he's a reporter. So then a man comes out of Glengarry Mortuary to survey the damage of the business. And Kolchak goes over and talks to him. And he is Mr. Carmichael. <laughs> he is the head cosmetologist, not undertaker. Kolchak kept calling him undertaker. And he's like, cosmetologist. So he tells Kolchak that the man broke into their supply room and stole facial putty and color base and put them all into an aluminum suitcase. And Kolchak is like, I don't, and then he realizes what that means. And he says they tried to stop him, but he broke one of the cosmetician's arms and then he jumped out the window. So Aiken then comes over and is like, you shouldn't be talking to the press, Mr. Carmichael. And Carmichael's like, oh, I thought he was one of yours. And so Carmichael leaves and Kolchak's still like, well, thank you for talking to me. And then he watches Aiken go over to a military man who's a colonel, we'll learn. And he's standing beside a car. And then from across the street, Peter shows up and he walks over to them and the three of them talk and kind of shake. And then the general leaves. And so Kolchak like runs to his Mustang and jumps in it and follows them. And so then eventually the colonel and his driver, because colonels don't drive themselves, they pull into a guarded entry of the Terrell Institute and the guard waves them in. And then Kolchak tries to like get into, but the guard stops him. And at first Kolchak tries to fake his way in by saying he's with the colonel. And then the guard asks him, like, Colonel who? And Kolchak is like, so the guard is like, yeah, get out of here. And so then he finally tells the truth, like, you know, with the INS, I'm trying to do a story for Dr. Walker's obituary. And the guard tells him, like, well, Terrell is a strict installation, and Kolchak needs to call the public information office. So they go back and forth, back and forth for a while. And eventually Carl's like, well, what information will the public information supply if I call them? And the guard is like, well, that depends on your level of classification. And so then... Kolchak is like, Ugh. and then like the guard is like, you can either leave or I can call my supervisors and you can spend a few hours talking to them. And Kolchak's like, yeah, no, I think I'll leave. Yeah. So, and then as he's leaving, the guard writes down his license plate. Yeah. So then Kolchak finally makes it to Dr. Leslie Dwyer's apartment. And after weaseling his way in, he drops the name Ring to see how she reacts. And her specific non reaction tells him all he needs to know. So it's some secret project called Ring at the Tyrell Institute. And she's like, I no longer work there. They let her go. But her field is computer science. So Kolchak tells her all about the robbery at the mortuary and how the trail led right back to her former employer. And she says she cannot help him, that every project at the Tyrell Institute is classified. And Kolchak's like, even Avery Walker's death. And then she's silent. And then Kolchak is again like, what's ring? What is it? And why don't you work there anymore? And then he kind of picks up an audio cassette that she has sitting on the table. And it's Moral Man and Immoral Society by Reinhold Neuber. And then she tells him, like, you need to leave. And he's like, you know, you play the part of the cold, calculating woman scientist. But you sure don't look it. That luscious hair and bright eyes. And he starts complimenting her body under her diaphanous gown. It's kind of creepy, honestly. It's, it's, it's a little cringy. And then a very large man in a pair of pajamas and a red robe with like his face still kind of like half covered in shaving cream, like he was shaving. He's got a big mustache. He's like, hey, you need to get out of here. And Kolchak's like, all right, all right, all right, I'm leaving. And then before he does, he manages to tell the guy that he does look absolutely divine in red. And then he leaves. Yeah. So, yeah. So then it's night and we see the robot standing near a van. 
and he waits until a woman passes by. And then when she has, he rips off the large side view mirror on the van. And we see him applying the cosmetologist putty to the mask. Not Undertaker. No. To form like a crude looking human face. So Kolchak has been unable to dig up any information on Ring and only a few tidbits on the Tyrell Institute through his contacts. But he did learn that a senior member of the Appropriations Committee that funds Tyrell is U.S. Senator Duncan LeBeau-Stevens, who is conveniently located in Chicago. Wow, convenient. Yeah, so Senator Stevens is very nice and affable until Kolchak keeps pushing about, like, Tyrell projects. Mm -hmm. And he gets told that they're working on something related to miniaturizing computers for the military and Avery Walker's death is a very sad thing, but that's all I can tell you basically. Mm-hmm. And so after confirming that Kolchak works for the INS, Stevens has him removed and he has his receptionist called General Brody at the Tyrell Institute and Peter Veerland in Washington. Yeah. So in the INS offices, Vincenzo is taking a call and it's not going well. He says he understands, and he ends the call. Then he looks up at Kolchak, who's standing in his office. And Kolchak says he doesn't know exactly what's going on, but when he figures it out, it's going to be bigger than Watergate. Yeah. Give Bernstein and Woodward a run for their Mm -hmm. money. It's going to make Watergate look like a pie fight. And Vincenzo tells Kolchak that he needs to send him to San Francisco immediately to cover the Mendeham trial. And he tells Kolchak that Updike got into a fight with the courtroom artist, so it's an emergency, but he'll handle everything. I'm just picturing why Updike would get into a fight with so the courtroom I, artist. I, I, I've, I've come up with, I guess, fan fiction about how Updike, because Updike is not going to be like aggressive and fight someone, right? It's going to obviously going to be, he's going to say something. It's going to be like a snippy back and forth. Yeah. He's going to say something about how like the color that he used for someone's jacket isn't correct or something like that. Like yes. he's going to be looking at the dude's art and just comment on the art itself about how like, Oh, that color really doesn't represent them well or something like that. And the dude's going to get all pissy and then they're getting into a fight. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So basically it's an emergency. Everything's going to be handled. He'll get a nice room with a view, nice dinner at a restaurant, all expenses covered. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. And, and yeah, I wouldn't go to San Francisco with all expenses covered and cover a trial. Heck yeah, that's mm-hmm. a sweet deal. So Kolchak says they're putting the heat on him, aren't they? And Vincenzo says the home office just called and his story is dead, meaning Kolchak's story. Mm-hmm. In addition, the city is suddenly threatening to condemn the INS building. And Kolchak's mm. like, huh, this is bigger than I thought. Whatever's going on, Avery Walker is dead because of it. And some super strong maniac is loose in the city. This story is going to be a blockbuster. Yeah. And Vincenzo's like, it doesn't matter. It's the federal government and it's his block they're going to bust. The INS DC correspondent has become person non grata and the UN correspondent has been denied a set of headphones. So basically the INS is now being shut out because of the story that Kolchak's working Mm -hmm. on. And what's so important about Kolchak's story that it's worth all of this? And Kolchak starts explaining about black budgets and, like, starts talking about, you know, the pie we pay into taxes and, you know, but there's this weird scoop on the side. And, like, what if you ordered pie a at Manny's but you didn't know what the ice cream was going to be? It could be anything. It could be chocolate chip or butter brickle or Rocky Road. And Vincenzo's like... I don't like Rocky Road. And Kolchak's like, I know you don't like Rocky Road. So Kolchak's like, if you wouldn't let Manny push you around like that, why are you letting the government? And he's like, if I'm going to write the obituary for Avery Walker, 
I have to know what he was working on, right? One, this is the weirdest explanation of how the government spends tax dollars on secret projects, like, ever. Yes. <laughs> like, you don't know what ice cream you're going to get, which is just hilarious. And then two, that Vincenzo agrees to let Kolchak continue with this story because they really need that obit. Like, oh, you're right. We need to know what to do to do it. Like, you couldn't just ignore that part. But no, go ahead. Keep keep <laughs> causing all the trouble because we need that obit. Like, it's important. <laughs> like, okay. I mean, Kolchak is persuasive. <laughs> Oh, man, it's great. Anyway, so it's 3.15 p.m., and Kolchak is on his way to the library to pull the congressional record because he's going to read through it and find out what's going on with the Trail Institute. But then on the police band, here's a report. There's an incident at the Windsor branch of the Chicago Public Library, and they request Captain Aiken show up. Hmm. So then we see Captain Aiken, and he's entering the library through a giant hole in the wall that's destroyed, like, several sections of bookcases. And Kolchak is like, snap, takes a picture of him coming in. And he's like, oh, have you seen our friend from the mortuary? And Aiken is like, no comment. And then just ignores him and goes over and talks to two men in dark suits. And then they go to inspect the damage on the wall, and they just ignore Kolchak, even though he tries to introduce himself. They just totally ignore him like he's not even there. And then Aiken tells Kolchak that he should just leave. And Kolchak's like, actually, I think I'll stick around. And so Aiken's like, well, it's a public place and we can't make you leave. But remember, they don't like loud mouths in places like this. So <laughs> little subtle warning to not cause trouble. So then Kolchak sees a librarian. She's very distraught. So he goes over and talks to her. And she says the man was throwing things all over the place. And then when he left, boom, he just went off the wall. So Kolchak asked if he seemed to be looking for anything in particular. And she's like, I don't know, but he destroyed the philosophy and humanity section. And so Kolchak is taking some photos and there's like several audio cassettes just strewn all across this table. And he picks up one and it's the second cassette in a series of the works of Thomas Aquinas. And it has Braille on it. And it's exactly the same kind of cassette that he saw at Dr. Dwyer's residence. So he pockets it. And Aikens comes over and he asks the librarian to please go speak to the gentleman in suits. And then Kolchak's like, Los Federales, over Aiken's shoulder. And then we cut and it's nighttime. And Kolchak's voiceover fills us in on what we're seeing. Same night, 11.25 p.m. Oh, 11.25 p.m. again. And we are in the apartment of Dr. Leslie Dwyer, lady computer expert and unexplained linked with Books for the Blind. And this is Kolchak talking. So as I was trying to fit all the pieces together, a worried Dr. Dwyer returned home from a visit to a friend's house. She wasn't aware that she herself had a visitor, one that would change the course of her life forever. Uh-oh. Yep. So we see Dr. Dwyer and she comes into the apartment. And the first thing she does is like lock all her locks. And she puts down her bag. And then she notices her patio door is open and her curtains are blowing, which... That's me. I'm backing the heck out of the house and like calling the cops like or maybe not the cops, but I'm calling the security company or something like, you know, maybe she just forgot to close it when she left. Yeah, I don't think people do. I mean, maybe in the 70s. She didn't know she was gonna be gone so long. Yeah. Anyway, she goes over, she closes it, she takes off her shoes and then she goes into the kitchen and she puts on the kettle to make some tea. And while she's in the kitchen, the camera pans over and in the reflection on one of the table lamps. We see the face of the robot, which is now like the mask is covered with that putty. Mm -hmm. Looks kind of like Michael Myers. It does. It does. Yeah. And we see Dr. Dwyer carrying her cup of tea and she sets it down and she walks into the living room and she comes face to face with the robot. And she's like, no, 
And then she backs up to the door and, you know, obviously the door is like super locked. So she like can't mm-hmm. just get it open and run away. Yeah. And then it's commercial. Uh-oh. That doesn't bode well for her. Yeah. So then it's April 3rd, 7 a.m. And the commuter rush hasn't started yet as Kolchak is driving down Lakeshore Drive. It seems Kolchak didn't immediately put the cassette from the library and Dr. Dory together like we did. But then when he did, he started trying to call her, but he received no reply. And he is about to find out why. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Yeah. R.I.P. Dr. Dwyer. Yeah. Although technically this should be April 4th at least because Dr. Walker was killed at 11.25 p.m. on April 2nd. Mm-hmm. And then we know it was 11.25 p.m. just recently when Dr. <laughs> Dwyer came home. And then now we're telling us April 3rd at 7 a.m. So there's weirdness going on there, too. Yeah. Anyway. Whoops. Yeah. So again, Chris Carter, why did you learn this from Kolchak? <laughs> I don't know. But if, you want, if you're going to take away something from a show, maybe not the best thing to take away. I from think it. it's just so. one of those things that happens on TV. They lose track. <laughs> you know, you if you're yeah. writing a book or a TV show or something, you really do have to have the timeline, like, if mm-hmm. not printed out and put on your wall, at least somewhere where you can reference it, because otherwise this stuff happens. It's not good. Yeah. So we are inside Dr. Dwyer's apartment and there's police everywhere. They're dusting for fingerprints and taking photographs. And the place is pretty trashed. There's overturned chairs and broken lamps. And Kolchak just walks in and a uniformed officer is like, hey, who are you? You can't be in here. And Kolchak is like, um, Kolchak, Major Kolchak, retired. I'm an old friend of Dr. Dwyer. What's going on around here? And so the officer apologizes, like, oh, sorry, Major. We don't know what's going on. He says the landlord came home and found the apartment was wrecked, and then he called us. And then over their shoulders, though, we can see the two men in dark suits are in the kitchen. So then Major Kolchak is like, well, do you know anything else? And the cop says that the paper boy told him he thought he saw a big guy outside wearing makeup. So they assume it's a sex crime. And then the men walk into the room behind the officer. And so Kolchak, like, immediately spins around because he doesn't want them to see his face. And the officer is like, well, Major, you know, you're willing to stay around in case we hear anything, you know. But then Kolchak is like, nope, I got to go to an ROTC parade and I wouldn't want to disappoint the cadets. So and then Kolchak just like bolts because he doesn't want to get caught by Los Federales. Yeah. So. So Kolchak heads back to the Walker's residence and Miss Walker is basically the only link he has left. Even if she's likely to still be drunk, he's hoping he can get something out of her. So yes, Mi- Mrs. Walker. Miss <clears throat> <Ms>. Walker. <laughs> Sorry. Just- so Miss Walker comes down the stairs in this like white fur colored robe and like matching pants and she has this glass in hand and of course she is drinking. Mm, she's looking good too. I'm not saying. <laughs> mm. And she offers to make Kolchak a drink and he declines and says it looks like she's going away because all her suitcases are like packed and piled up near the door. And she says, yes, far away. I've sobered up, which I... I mean, she looks like she's drinking. I don't know if she's really. Maybe she's up. drinking less. Maybe. But she still sold, looks good, though. Mm. She sold mm. the house. She collected the insurance. And now she's going to go start enjoying herself. And before she does, Kolchak asks, like, can I just ask you about Ring one more time? And she's like, well, I gave you Dr. Dwyer's address. Ask her. She would know more about it anyway. And he says he would, except that she's disappeared. And Miss Walker's like, anything serious? And Kolchak's like, maybe. And so Miss Walker kind of smiles and she's like, delighted to hear it, though I really shouldn't care. And she does mention that she was sloshed when she told Kolchak they were having an affair. She's kind of like, 
They weren't really. It was a romance of the head. Avery was besotted with her mind. And Kolchak seems to find the fact that there was no physical attraction not totally believable, but you know. Yeah, although she's not as hot as uh, Mrs. Walker, but yeah. yeah. So Ms. Walker basically says her husband's idea of passion was a hot diode and that he was really into like that and autonetics. And autonetics was apparently Dr. Dwyle's field. His was microcircuitry. So she asked Kolchek if he's ever been bored to tears, like physically ill, crawling out of your skin, ready to scream with boredom. And Kolchek's like, yeah, yeah. And, like, you know, he wants to keep her talking, so he agrees that he has definitely mm-hmm. felt that type of absolute boredom. And she says that was what it was like when they would get together with drinks. Like, Avery and Dr. Dwyer would talk about microcircuitry and stress patterns and functional abilities. And, and- siliconized limb plates, intelligence programming, and joint malleability. So we have cut to Kolchek, and he's in Vincenzo's office, and he is holding the story that he has written. And Vincenzo was like, well, what does all that mean? And Kolchak's like, autonetics. And then Vincenzo's like, in inglese per favore. And by the way, that's Italian. So Kolchak's like, a robot. That building a robot is what Project Ring is. And he thinks that the robot must have developed a mind of its own and then just walked out of the Tyrell Institute. And Vincenzo is dubious and he's like, okay, so what's next? Besides me being the first newsman to be shot by a military firing squad. <laughs> and I mean, honestly, you probably have to go back in time for that to be true. But yeah, it's. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I get what he's saying. Like he's, <laughs> he's the one who's going to get hell for it. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then Kolchak figures that ring came for Dr. Dwyer and he probably killed Dr. Walker. Maybe he killed Dr. Dwyer too, but he is going to find out. And then the just like, and then. And then Kolchak's like, and then we'll have the biggest cover-up story since. And then Vincenzo totally interrupts him and says they may not have a story at all. He's received a bulletin that they may restrict the use of INS's wire. Apparently there's political trouble in El Salvador, and it's now a national emergency. And so they may have to commandeer the wire to use it for military communications. So Kolchak is like, don't worry. When those El Salvadorian Panzer brigades rumble into our fair city, I'll be standing right there beside you, manning <laughs> the barricades and ready to. And Vincenzo's like, just go. Please just go. So he's tired of Kolchak and he wants him to go. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, dear. But you know, the military <laughs> is threatening to shut down their wire, commandeer it. Mm, some mm-hmm. stuff going on. Some men in black action. Yeah. So Kolchak enters the main area of the office and Emily has information for him. Of the five branches of the library that carry books for the blind, AKA talking books, which, you know, books on tape. Mm-hmm. Audiobooks. Yeah, yeah, basically, which are very prominent now and many people listen to them for various reasons, mm-hmm. including myself. I'm a big audiobook fan. And four of the branches of the library were absolutely useless. But the fifth had just checked out the works of St. Thomas Aquinas Moral Man and Immoral Society by Niebuhr and Aristotle's Ethics. So obviously Chidi Anagonye is going through audiobooks. Um, it's a good place reference. I'm sorry. I can't see the word Aristotle without thinking about him. So Kolchak asks if she got the name of the borrower. And Emily tells him that they wouldn't give out information like that, obviously. So Kolchak takes the number for the library. And we don't really hear how he does it. 
but he does manage to get the phone number of the person who checked the books out because Kolchak's kind of a shame. Yeah, because we get the start of the phone call, but then we don't get the actual what he says to get the information, which is kind of yeah. disappointing. But it probably would have been hard to get it to you. So it's probably like, you know what? I don't know how you would do this. So let's just say he did it. Right, exactly. Because it's librarians yeah. are pretty, <laughs> pretty badass. And they're not just going to give out information willy nilly, even if Kolchak yeah. is smooth. So anyway, Kolchak has some contacts and they can take the telephone number and find the address associated with it. And the address he finds is registered as a summer home to one Dr. Leslie Dwyer. <gasps> and it's located just north of Chicago along the shore of Lake Michigan. Mm. So Kolchak arrives at the property at night and he parks on the street and enters the gates on foot. And it's a pretty high-end like summer home with like fountain statuary and like large double wooden doors and cold lion knockers. And it's very fancy. Yeah, very it's fancy. like a summer mansion. Computer science in 1974 pays pretty well. Yeah. Unless the government paid her off. That one, mm. you know, could be either one. Or both. So no one answers when he uses the knocker. So Kolchak walks around. He kind of looks in through some of the windows. And a lot of the rooms are kind of dimly lit or dark. And there's curtains on most of them. And it's kind of like a white, almost opaque, gauzy material. Yeah, you can kind of see through it, but not really. And as Kolchak continues around the house, the camera pans back to one of the windows and we see Ring peering outside through one of the curtains. Yeah, with his eerie putty face. (laughs) Yeah. And then we have commercial. Yeah, commercial. Yeah. So Kolchak manages to open a side door of the house, like to get it open. And while inside, Ring releases the blinds and he turns to walk into the interior of a large sitting room. So Kolchak, now that he's in, he closes the door and he walks through the dark house and he passes the stairwell. And then he's standing in the sitting room, which is the spot where we last saw Ring. <gasps> and he hears a creak and he turns around and he's startled. But it's just a statuary bust. So there's actually a lot of like art pieces and like funky statues and stuff kind of in this house. It's very that odd. It's a crazy fancy place. Fancy place with lots of gaudy decoration. And big chandelier. And yeah. So the camera pans from inside the sitting room and we lose sight of Kolchek temporarily. And we come to another entryway and we see Kolchek in the other room. And we see the ring is standing behind the wall. And he's only feet away from Kolchak. <gasps> and as the camera enters the room past Ring, we focus on Kolchak and he hears footsteps. So Kolchak enters the sitting room from the entryway. And this is a sitting room where Ring was just there, but he's gone. And the room appears to be <gasps> empty. So Kolchak looks up to a mezzanine above the sitting room. And then he goes back to where he originally entered and up the stairs that he had previously passed. And of course, they're creaky and he grimaces because of course they are. <laughs> can't be sneaky on creaky stairs. And he keeps looking behind himself just in case, but eventually he makes it to the top and enters a lit room. In the room, Dr. Dwyer is laying on the sofa and she's asleep or she's unconscious or she's dead. We actually don't know. 
and there's a small reel-to-reel player that's running, and the end of the tape is just like spitting and going in. click, 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 click. And then he kneels down because her wrist is kind of like hanging off the side of the couch. And so he kneels down to like check her pulse. And she's like, ah, and then he's like, oh, oh," and like it scares him too. Yeah. And then she kind of like, oh, she like sighs and she sweeps back her hair and she reaches over and she turns off the tape player. And she's like, how did you find me? And he's like, that doesn't matter. And then they talk a little bit and she's like, you need to leave. This is a private residence. And he's like, true, but ring is a public project funded by the hard-earned tax dollars of the people. And he starts doing his little, duh, 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 and she kind of just like gives him a look of like, are you serious? And then finally he's like, okay, look. So Dr. Avery was a friend of yours, correct? All right. So his wife may not care how he died, but surely he has some other family or friends, and they deserve some kind of explanation as to what happened to him. And Dr. Dwyer's like, I don't even know where to begin. And he's like, well, I don't know either, but how about we start with nomenclature? What is ring? Like, what does R-I-N-G mean? Like, I don't even know. And we find out that ring stands for robomatic internalized nerve ganglia. Ooh. Ring. Yeah. So ring wasn't programmed to kill. She says that ring killed Avery because ring didn't want to die. And Kolchek is like, how can a robot die? Like, he doesn't quite understand. And Dwyer says that when Ring was conceived, she was in charge of programming him. And there were debates and discussions about what type of programming it should be. And the military, of course, wanted aggression programmed in. Dwyer opposed that, and so she was removed from the project. And then apparently Avery was given the job of deactivating Ring... But unfortunately, Avery didn't realize how far they'd gotten with the robot at that point. And he didn't know that they'd actually programmed a survival instinct into the robot. So Dwyer says that Ring has sensitivities, likes, dislikes, wants, and he wanted to live. So when Avery tried to deactivate him, he killed Avery. And Dwyer has been trying to complete his moral and ethical programming. She says that Ring himself desired a set of guidelines, which is why he previously stole the philosophy tapes. Yeah. But boom! Suddenly Ring's fist smashes through the wooden door, and then he bursts the door open completely. And he starts entering the room, and Kolchak is like, whoa! And he jumps up, and Dwyer's like, don't worry, Ring won't hurt you. And Kolchak's like, well, he won't hurt me. He just, like, busted through the door. What's he going to do? And so Ring keeps advancing towards him, and Kolchak is like... Stop, make him turn around, make him do something, you know, because he doesn't want to get killed by the robot. And then Ring just keeps coming, and Dwyer says that you have to treat Ring with openness. And then he's like, well, make him stop. And so she says, Ring, please stop. And Ring stops. Huh. So she tells Kolchak to talk to him. And Kolchak's like, about what? And she's like, well, ask him a question. Let him do what he does best. And she tells Kolchak that he even made this mask to make him look human. And she's like, you don't need this anymore, Ring. And she, like, takes the mask off. And Kolchak sees his LED face. And Kolchak says, hello. And then he asks Ring what time it is. And Ring replies that given the expense of his development, it would be wasteful to utilize him simply for the purpose of telling the time, especially since he's not wearing a watch. And that the prudent option would be to consult a rudimentary clock. And Kolchak's like, makes sense. 
So Kolchak asked him a question about like naming pi to nine places, which Ring does, although Kolchak doesn't actually know pi to nine places, so he can't. Well, that actually, I, I thought that too. He actually doesn't say pi to, he says pi to the 12th, which is pi raised to the 12th power, okay. which Ring does know. He actually gives the correct answer. I was going to mention that too, and then I was like, wait a minute. So then I double checked and he actually gives the right number. Either way, Kolchak doesn't know if he's right or wrong because he doesn't yeah. calculate that. Neither would I. And so then he asks another question about, like, who the father of modern psychology is, to which Ring replies, like, the standard answer and then the qualifier, which shows a deeper understanding. And Kolchak asks him to repeat it again in French, which Ring does. Yeah. And okay. Tori can tell us how well he did on that one. Yeah, it's real French. It sounded right okay, to me. Cool. Not a French expert. <laughs> You're our French expert. I am. I am going through Duolingo trying to brush up on my French because mine is really rusty, but... I'm trying for like, I've studied it for like four years in high school and like a year or two in college. So like, I should know more than I do, but anyway. Which is only six years more than I've studied it. So, yeah, you know, that's why you're our expert. <laughs> so then Kolchak asks, what's the difference between right and wrong? And Ring is silent and he turns to Dr. Dwyer and Kolchak repeats the question and Ring is still silent, but you can see from his flashing lights that he's like trying to compute the answer. And Dwyer says, no philosopher or audio tape can answer that question. And then she asked Kolchak if he can answer it. And so Kolchak asked Ring, who had the greater right to life, you or Dr. Avery Walker? And again, Ring silently tries to compute. And Dwyer tells Kolchak that Ring could have taken his life when he entered the house, but he didn't. He waited to find out how Kolchak worked. She tells him that Ring is still a child ethically and emotionally. He's only a few days old. He needs time to grow. And Kolchak notes that he's still computing. So Dwyer's like, ring, end computation. Yep. But then suddenly ring starts computing again, and he turns his head towards the window. And Kolchak and Dr. Dwyer run to the window, and she's like, did anyone follow you? And he's like, I don't know. And they look out the window, and they see, like, all these military vehicles, jeeps and stuff, and police cars with flashing lights, and they're pulling through the gate. And then Colonel Wright who is the guy that we saw at the mortuary thing that Kolchak was following. He's on a megaphone and he says, Dr. Dwyer, you and Mr. Kolchak have one minute to come out. And inside Dwyer tells Kolchak that Ring came to her like a frightened child with his new face and clothes. And he tried to make himself presentable to her. He doesn't mean to hurt anyone. He just didn't understand. So outside, Colonel Wright tells Dr. Dwyer to please cooperate. And Dwyer tells Ring that the people outside are their friends. They won't hurt them. And Kolchak volunteers to go down and talk to them first. So he goes down the stairs, but the military bursts through the double doors. And Kolchak's like, where are the tank and the howitzers? Like, you guys are just going to burst in? This is how you handle this? And Wright tells him to shut up and stand aside. And we see Aiken and Peters are also in the room with Wright and his men. And Wright calls for Dwyer to come down and bring the robot. And Kolchak says they're going to make him mad. He considers this his home, and this isn't going to end well for them. Wright nods, and two soldiers grab Kolchak, and they throw him on a sofa. And Kolchak tells them to get their hands off the press, and he stands back up. And then Dr. Dwyer appears at the top of the stairs with Ring. And after a few steps down the stairs, she tells the soldiers to move back and put down those stupid guns. She tells Ring that it's all right for him to come down. She's like, see, I'm going first. It's okay. Yep, and then right then, Wright is like, take them. And two armed soldiers run up and grab Dr. Dwyer. And she's like, no, no, don't do this. And then Wright's like, take Ring, take him. And so the soldiers run up to the stairs, and then soldiers are thrown down the stairs, and they're thrown over the side of the stairs. 
And then Ring eventually gets to the bottom because he's obviously trying to get to Dr. Dwyer. And a soldier fires point blank shot at his head. And Dwyer screams. And the ring kind of stumbles back and he falls spread eagle onto the stairs. So Dwyer runs over to him and ring is kind of like, I think he's counting in French. I don't know, Tori, you know, his voice is really messed up at this point. Uh, so, I'm trying to remember. I remember him saying something and then he eventually gets. I thought Dwyer. he said set, which is like seven. And then I thought he said the number for nine, but like he's kind of skipping around too. So yeah. it's hard for me to tell. Set neuf, set wheat neuf. Yeah. And then his vocalization is starting to fail. And Kolchek runs over too. And he turns back to right and is like, are you satisfied? And then Ring starts to recite the Greek alphabet like alpha beta but mm -hmm. his voice is becoming more and more distorted and broken and he's looking towards dr dwyer like you know like in every scene you see where someone's dying they're looking towards the person kneeling next to him that's what we're seeing now dr dwyer is next to him and then eventually he can only utter like a syllable and then he can only utter a sound and then his lights blink out and he is silent and still and dr dwyer cries and then she solemnly gets up and she walks away and kolchik stands up and then he takes a picture of the ring, but then Wright comes over and he nods and soldiers grab Kolchek and they take him away. And he's like, hey, hey, hey. And then Wright gets up and follows them. And ring is left alone on the stairs, unmoving, dead. Yeah. And we fade to black and go to commercial. Yep. So then Kolchek is back in the INS offices and he's still alone. And he has a small cup of coffee. Apparently that he made from the kettle that he was heating up. And he continues his recording. I don't even know where they took me now. At least I can't be sure. Maybe it was the Tyrell Institute. But it could have just as been the Black Hills of South Dakota for all I know. Was there a drug? Pentanol? Pesclamine? I can't be sure of that either. But there must have been something. I can't even be sure the events ever happened the way I've told them. Perhaps when I'm completely back in this world, I'll turn on this tape and not believe any of it myself. But I doubt it. Because I believe that somewhere, someplace, they or someone else will put another ring together without the help of Dr. Leslie Dwyer. And who, who will program him then? And he takes a cup of coffee and he turns off the recorder and end credits. Yep. Yep. So I have to say, not so much when I was watching the episode, but when I was writing these notes... I kind of started to cry when Ring died. Aww. So, yeah. Anyway, so definitely some Frankenstein vibe going on in this episode for sure. Yeah. Like, you know, Ring trying to like gain knowledge and fit in and that kind of stuff. And then, yeah. Also, especially in the last scene, I'm going to say Peters, he was standing there looking at stuff. And I'm like, you know what? That dude could have passed as a young cigarette smoking man. And I'm like, hmm. Yeah. Hmm. He's kind of got enough of that look. So I don't know the cigarette smoking man would have had the shaggy 70s hair, but like facially, he could have, he probably could have passed as a young William B. Davis. Totally. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. So Robert Eastern played Mr. Carmichael, the cosmetologist, not Undertaker. And I immediately recognized him from something. And it took me a while to figure out where I recognized him from. But in the process, I read the story of someone who was pretty amazing which is one of the reasons why i love doing these little side tracks and rabbit holes for side characters and stuff because they don't make me angry and i like not being angry even though i'm usually angry a lot but so robert easton where i recognize him from because i watched this show a ton when i was a kid i recognize him because i could picture him saying something i could picture him saying but paul like a like a little hillbilly kind of dude 
And that is because he was in the 1965 episode of the Munsters where he played like a redneck basketball player. And then like Herman Munster gets a scholarship to be basketball. And like, it's like he loses his scholarship and then the Munsters try to get it and get him his scholarship back. And that's why I recognize him from like, just that one scene. It's like, I recognize him completely. And like, could, but I could, took me a while to figure out where it was from. Okay. But what's interesting is like he, his career basically was him playing like rednecks and hayseeds and all that kind of stuff. And then he got married and he moved to England and he went to school and he got very interested in both to further his career and just because natural interest, he got very interested in how like people speak and he wanted to like improve like his ability to speak. And so he could get better roles and not be playing like, you know, rednecks and hillbillies and all that kind of stuff all the time. And so he went to college and he actually started like roaming around the country and doing recordings. He actually ended up becoming like the preeminent voice coach and dialect coached in Hollywood for like decades. Nice. Like you read through his Wikipedia page and you can just read all the stuff of like people's voices that he gave to. And like he gave like just ones that I'm going to pick out because they kick with me. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking Russian in Red Heat. He like helped him turn his Austrian accent into a Russian accent and just all kinds of stuff. At one point, I guess Robert Duvall plays Robert E. Lee in a movie like in the early 2000s and he had asked him to help him learn how to speak like a Virginian. And I guess Robert Houston was like, well, which kind? They're like 12 different dialects of Virginian, which one do you want to speak like? So he like just knew all this stuff. And so it was kind of amazing. Like you just like little side dudes and you're not, they have these like amazing careers that you never even knew about. So it's kind of interesting to me. So, huh? Yeah. But the big thing about this episode is the Tyrell Institute and how it relates to Tyrell Corporation and how Project Ring relates to Roy Batty because we are talking Blade Runner. So the Tyrell Corporation in Blade Runner, which came out in 1982, is based upon Philip K. Dick's 1968 book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And so the Tyrell Corporation in the movie is based on the Rosen Association in the book. And in a draft for Blade Runner from December 22nd, 1980, the corporation is actually called the Nico Corporation. But sometime between December of 1980 and the film coming out, they changed it to the Tyrell Corporation. Okay. So I started looking it up because I was like, I can't be the only person who came up with this idea. There must be like people writing about this. Like, there's no way I came up with this, right? I did find a link for an IMDB thread from 2008 talking about it, but the link unfortunately was invalid. It doesn't work because like, I guess IMDb has changed their website enough to where you or it's probably behind the paywall now or whatever. So I couldn't get a definitive answer because in the IMDb thread, apparently they were talking about they were going to write to some of the people that worked on Blade Runner and actually ask them the question. But like I couldn't find anything where someone had definitely said like yes or no. But I mean, it seems reasonable to assume that, you know, 1975. Blade Runner is being worked on like in 1980, comes out in 82. It seems reasonable to think like someone saw Mr. Ring or was even involved with it or knew someone who was involved with it and made the connection between like the Android stuff and the Blade Runner stuff. And it's like, hey, let's just use this name because it's like an homage. So, yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't think it was like, you know, like, oh, they stole from it or no, whatever. but I mean, or, or Mr. Ring is stolen from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep because really the book is way different than the movie. Yeah. I think I've read um, the book actually. I've never yeah. seen the movie, but I actually tried to listen to the book. Speaking of audiobooks, I tried to listen to it as an audiobook and I had to stop because it was so boring. But it also may have just been the person reading it too. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, but I think there's a lot of that in Hollywood. Like people reference things and they pay homage to things and there's like, you know, references to things that they like and enjoy and they're just kind yeah. of like little East. And also like in the 70s and 80s, Hollywood wasn't as big as we think of it as now and like a lot of just like you know people work on stuff that you have no idea yeah the guy who created the sopranos was like the story editor for the entire season of Colcheck, and that was his first job like that's crazy yeah so. i mean hollywood is very i think it's still incredibly interconnected and a lot smaller than people think it is yeah so i will point out there is an x-files connection because obviously it's kind of presumed that Colcheck was drugged by the government to forget about mistering which we know is a thing that happens to Mulder to forget about things that he's seen that are secret. Episode two, Deep Throat. Yeah. Yep. If not more than that. But Probably. That but apparently they don't have this hydrate and the like forget me not eye drops yet that like yeah. <laughs> keep Mulder from knowing because Kolchak is able to piece together quite a bit. So good for him. Yeah. So maybe Chris Carter was inspired by more than just dates don't have to match he was like yeah oh, that's a good idea yeah i don't so. think that was a huge point of inspiration although if you ever work <laughs> on a piece of fiction like timelines are really hard timelines are hard like they are like it's easy to watch and go huh i mean the october to march thing should have gotten caught uh, as we talked last episode but like timelines are hard like it's one of those things that just it's hard to keep track because you've got so much stuff you're keeping track of and you really do have to like write it down and put it somewhere prominent so you can refer to it well and i missed that again. that's because it was like it was like pages later and like so much stuff has happened like I, even i didn't catch it right but i mean to that point they really should have caught the whole like it's 12 15 and then the cops is 2 30 because that's like within less than a minute of each other where and i realized like darren mcgavin's voiceover was probably recorded at a different time but then you think they would be like watching i don't, I don't know but that's just weird that that part was so yeah. close and then off and it's too. just i think it's a function of tvs worked on by so many different people and it goes through so many different things and like it's just that stuff that kind of stuff it gets missed because no one really notices it until it's all together in one piece and then it's on the air and no one can fix it because it is too late so yeah yeah but so what did you think about the rating for this episode? Oh, this one's hard. I don't know. I mean, I feel like this one was pretty. It was okay. Like it was, it was a fine story. It didn't. I don't know. I wasn't super into it, to be honest. I just, I don't know. Like the robot thing, just it felt kind of silly. And I know that's. I'm not. It's not really fair because, like, obviously the costume's a little silly. <laughs> And then he puts makeup on himself and like, it's sweet. Like the intention is sweet, but like, it just, I don't know. It didn't feel as like captivating some of the other ones. Like it didn't feel as like tense and like, I don't know. It just, it didn't grab me in the same way. You move all the conspiracy stuff. I mean, the conspiracy stuff is good. It's just, I don't know. It didn't really grab me in the way that so many of the other episodes of the show have. I think it's, it's good. It's just kind of like middle of the road. So I was just going to give this one kind of a five. Okay. Maybe I'll talk you into a six like I did last time. Yeah. So let's see. So I think I'm actually going to give this one. Hmm, let me see here. I need this. I need to look and see. Hmm. I mean, there's nothing super bad about it. It just isn't super. It didn't stand out to me the way some of these have. Hmm. Hmm. I'm trying to decide between a six and a seven. So like, is this like Firefall and Devil's Platform, or is this like Spanish Moss Murders and Horror in the Heights, hmm. or 
they have been, they are, they will be. Hmm. I actually, okay, so looking at that, I think I'm going to go with a seven. Okay. Because I think it does, yeah. Because, like, the same thing is kind of with episode three. They have been, they are, they will be. Like, the technological limitations of what you can do. But that one also, again, that one also really is, like, a really, like, ex files influence the episode because we got the ufos mm-hmm. and kind of you know that all kind of stuff so yeah i'm gonna go with seven nice. i'm gonna i'm gonna yeah there's a lot of stuff in there that i kind of like i mean mrs walker yeah. well, <laughs> really i mean I, I mean you know watching the creature of the black lagoon as a kid on like you know afternoon television on kmph was like i mean she was attractive then but now that i'm older and in this one she's a little bit older and you know maybe it's my i don't know it's a gross thing to think that maybe like the male psyche is like like oh that woman is drunk she's really attractive that might be gross but just uh no yeah so yeah. i mean i don't think she's pretty because she's drunk but i just <laughs> no that's not why she's pretty but it's just yeah it's like i really here's maybe personal information we don't need to talk about but when my wife drinks wine, there's something about the way her breath tastes when she's had some wine and we kissed. And I'm like, mm. so I don't know. And I hate <laughs> wine, but it really gets me going. So, yeah, nice, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wired to be gross. I don't know. But yeah. <laughs> I didn't think she was funny. I kind of and I like to think about, like, have you ever been so bored? Like, I just I don't know. You could tell that whatever their marriage had been, it had gotten to a point where she was just like ready for him to stop talking to her <laughs> yeah she's like you don't need to tell me about your work it's fine i don't care yep. <laughs> and you know she didn't understand that she probably felt a little bit oh man i'm getting into fictional character feelings but she probably felt a little isolated when he was with leslie dwyer too because they're both in this world and like she doesn't yeah what when you kind of got that too because she has a scene where she's like like she says like she was required to be there when they would get together so if, i don't know if those were like work functions or something where you had to bring because you kind of get the idea that maybe like it probably was like a loveless marriage to begin like maybe from the start and maybe she was like you know he's a he's a highfalutin scientist and you know we don't know when he supposedly got the nobel prize but like was she just a trophy wife because she was super pretty and then yeah we don't know yeah we don't have any idea so who knows but either way i hope she enjoys her travels and her life i bet she will Yep. All righty. <laughs> Mr. Ring. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Hat Studios. Episode production, design, and editing is by Lazy and Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz. And The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us next time as we rewatch episode 13 of Kolchek the Night Stalker, Primal Scream. And try to figure out if, if the, the truth, truth is, is still, still out there. there.
and we see him applying the cosmetologist putty to the mask. Not Undertaker. No. Uh, to form like a crude looking human face. It's, you know, better than the makeup on Dogcom. Anyway, <laughs> it's not. But um, it does look really like haphazard. It's just funny. We just, as we're recording this, we just talked about Dogcom. And so that's on my mind is the old people makeup. Yeah. So when I saw this, that's I was not like. Dogcom. That's Dogcom. Dead, dead, dead calm, basically. Yeah. Episode 19, season two of, of the, the X-Files. X-Files. 